Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Play Well podcast. This is, I think, episode 19. I don't remember, but um, whatever. You'll probably see it by the time you download it. Um, this episode that we have here today is a very, very exciting. I sit down with Eric Barone, also known as Concerned Ape, also known as the developer, the solo developer behind Stardew Valley. Now, if you haven't played Stardew Valley, you have to sit down and try it. Just be careful because it is so addictive. Uh, it's a very zen-like farming game. If you are familiar with Harvest Moon from the 90s, then you kind of know what you're getting into. Um, but really, we talk a lot about uh, how he managed to do this all by himself. It is not an easy thing, not even something that I, or it sounds like he would completely wholly recommend for most people. But he did it very successfully and has made a beautiful game because of it. I know that some people expected an episode with Alex Preston, uh, the guy behind uh, Hyperlight Drifter. We had to push that one due to some craziness going on, I think, over at his studio because they just released on PS4 and Xbox One. So that will be coming. But this is one that we have been so, so, so excited for. And I know that there's an insane number of Stardew Valley fans out there. So check this out. I think you guys are going to want to listen to Eric and hear him talk about uh, what it is that he does and how he pulls it off so well. So without further ado, this is Eric and I talking about Stardew Valley. So um, great. Thanks for taking the time to uh, sit and chat with me. Um, I don't know how much you know about the podcast, but I have for the last like six months or so been just doing these interviews with game makers. Um, largely kind of what I wanted to do was to just hear them talk as frankly and as openly as they were willing to, because I think that um, there's a lot to learn about game development from people who do it. And that's not talked about in a very candid way. Um, and your story immediately obviously grabbed my attention, you know, first and foremost, because Stardew Valley is fantastic. I first caught wind of it a long time ago because you're affiliated with Chucklefish, right? Yeah, they're my publisher. Yeah. So Chucklefish, um, I, you know, I became a fan of Starbound uh, early on when they announced uh, that stuff. And then I became aware of Stardew through that. And then you released and it took over, right? Like, I don't know anybody who plays games that wasn't checking out Stardew Valley. So um, on its own merits, completely successful. Uh, so congratulations on that. Thank you. Uh, but it begs, you know, it begs a lot of questions. Um, I normally start these podcasts with like a series of random questions. It's kind of a way to get to know you. Um, are you down with me doing those first? Sure. Cool. Awesome. So we'll start with those. I'll kind of rapid fire them, answer them as they come, and then uh, we'll get into talking a little bit about Stardew. Mm -hmm. Okay. Cool. First thing, uh, do you have any phobias? Um, I'm kind of uh, scared of heights, I guess. It's a good <laughs> I one. I get like a visceral feeling when I, I mean, I, I don't avoid high, high areas really, but I do get this like strong, overwhelming gut feeling of dread. Yeah. When I go to like the edge of a railing or something. Yeah. No, that's that's my number one phobia. In fact, I get the feeling as though my center of gravity is pulling me off the edge. Yeah. So I do not. <laughs> yeah, I, it's totally unreasonable. There'll be like a very safe and secure railing. And if I'm standing on the edge of it, I'll just get this overwhelming feeling like I'm going to like tip off of it at any moment. <laughs> yep. I'm with you on that. Yeah, man. It's the worst. And like, so there's been multiple times where I've had friends who have gone hiking up in like a beautiful park and 
up on some like amazing ledge and i'm like no won't go like i will do a lot of different adventurous things but if it's going to be hiking up to some like treacherous thing i'm not interested (laughs) yeah cool all right do you believe in luck Mm. do i believe in luck no i don't think so (laughs) (laughs) i believe in randomness yeah, I don't. So think I you... guess you get. It depends on how you define luck. All right, I guess like if you say luck is just, um, you know, kind of winning a random draw, or getting a favorable outcome from a random draw, then yeah, I believe in luck. But right. I don't believe it's some kind of mystical uh, power that you know, like you some have pe- a certain amount of. Yeah, like some people got it and others don't type thing. Yeah, I don't believe that. Cool, I'll take it. All right, what's uh, one person or character that you would like to grab a coffee with? This is a tough one. That is a tough one. I'd like to grab a coffee with. We can take Let's a pass see. if you want to think about it. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. Okay, next one. Uh, time machine or teleportation, which would you take? Probably time machine. Interesting. It's yeah. the it's the lesser chosen option. Really, it seems just like more of um, like a profound power to have. Yeah, I interviewed uh, Soren Johnson last episode, and he does. He's worked on the Civ series. Uh, he just did. Um, uh, for some reason, I'm losing the name. Even though I played about Offward Trading Company. And so he studies like a ton of history. It's like goes into a lot of what he does. So he picked time machine. Most everybody picks teleportation. Initially, it was teleportation, time machine, or jetpack. Nobody picked jetpack because it's not that impressive anymore. So, yeah. <laughs> so I killed right. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Um, what book are you reading right now? I am reading uh, Foundation by Asimov. Ooh. I've never even read any Asimov. Is it yeah, good? Does uh, it hold up? Um, it's pretty good. I I was um, I'm a big fan of Arthur C. Clarke, mm-hmm. and uh, I've never actually read any Asimov before. But you know, I've always heard him compared to Clarke as you know they're these godfathers of uh, sci-fi or something. So you know, I, I'm giving it a shot, and I, I like the concept. It's a really cool idea. Um, I don't necessarily like his writing style as much as Clarke's yeah. for some reason. It just you know, it's just not really. I don't know, something about Clark, he like writes in this very kind of removed and grand way that I really appreciate. But, I mean, it's good so far. I haven't gotten that far into it yet. Yeah, yeah, cool. I'll have to check it out. I recently, someone recently suggested that I read Contact, um, which I never read. I saw the movie years ago, but I was thinking about diving into that one. It's a classic from what I understand. Yeah, I've heard that too. Cool, cool. Uh, What are you playing right now then? Um, let's see. I am playing Euro Truck Driving Simulator 2. <laughs> are you? I've never. Yeah. So these games are huge, and I've never met anybody that plays it. Really? Yeah. I mean, it. okay, I, I got it during the Steam summer sale. Uh-huh. Because, um, I don't know. It's just one of those things that I've heard a bunch of people talk about. It's like, it has like, you know, I think something like three and a half million copies sold. And... It just seemed like something that was kind of odd and maybe I would like it and maybe it would be fun. And it turns out that it is kind of like it's this strangely like almost like meditative uh, experience. 
because it, it's so like it's so kind of boring in a way but <laughs> it keeps you focused and like you kind of just get this strange satisfaction from taking on the role of like this truck driver and you know you it it's i don't know i feel like people who like stardew valley might like this game like was, they have weird, strange similarities you know well i was i was gonna make the comparison but then you said um said something that would have been offensive <laughs> kind, so. of, kind yes. of boring which i don't find so well, obviously don't find Stardew valley bowling boring but i do find it wildly meditative Right. It's not like a, you know, in your face with action and constant like stimulation. The the like the fun level is kind of low and slow, I feel like, you know, yeah. it kind of is slow and steady. Yeah. But then you turn around and we'll get into this, but then you turn around and like you're like why are these hooks so deep into me? Like it's like it's such a slow conversion, but then the obsession sets in, which yeah. I think is the case for a lot of people that have played Stardew. But anyway, yeah, so now I'm probably going to try Euro Truck Simulator, so I've wondered. I mean, I totally imagined it being like just a little bit more like complex than Desert Desert Bus. You, you seen ever seen that Desert I, Bus game? No, I haven't. It's this like really like really low quality like lo-fi pixely game where you drive on this completely straight desert road for like miles in this bus, but the alignment is like a tiny tiny bit off. So you slowly. So it's like. <laughs> it's like boring enough to where it's like okay you're just on a straight road but you can't not play it because then you'll veer off the road it's it's awful yeah. but there's people that will do like <laughs> marathons for charity of playing desert bus so that's interesting anyway yeah don't yeah don't go get hooked on that now um so uh last two questions where are you based uh and uh, why 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 are you where you are i am based in seattle and I'm here basically because this is where I grew up. It's where I, I mean, I grew up in a town that's like kind of south of Seattle, but it's still in the Seattle metropolitan area. Mm-hmm. And then um, at some point, my girlfriend and I just moved to Seattle um, because some of our friends were up here. Uh, my girlfriend goes to University of Washington, which is in Seattle. And it was kind of like a dumb commute for her to drive all the way. So like we moved a lot closer so that she could take her bike there yeah and you know for me i can work anywhere it doesn't matter so yeah and i like seattle seattle's good for game development though it is you got a good yeah we're right good crowd we're right next to nintendo uh valve microsoft so like how many you know how many small devs are out there though i mean i feel like there's a lot of big stuff you have digipen out there so you turn out a lot of like people that go into triple a right i think so I mean, I'm not really like part of the Seattle like indie developer scene. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't really know any other developers to be honest. That's so kind of an outsider, dude. You're so yeah. you're so you're like a fascinating story. Okay, so we're gonna get into this. Is that all right? Like, um, sure. I'm sure this is a story that everybody asks you to tell. Is like, you're kind of a solo developer. What's the like? What's the story there? Like, what's what? Where, how did you come to this position? Okay, well. Um, I've, I've always been like into making things, um, drawing, you know, making music. I've made little games in the past. It's just kind of something I do. Like, even if I wasn't a game developer, I think I would just always be making something. It's just kind of a compulsion I have. And, um, so basically I got my computer science degree 
kind of randomly. Um, I was going to community college. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. There was this uh, attractive computer science program at a local university that I just kind of decided to do because I, I kind of en I enjoyed programming. I had done it before. Um, it seemed like a a good field to be in, and like I had no idea, so I just went with it. And then you know during the course of getting my computer science degree, I was thinking like, what am I going to do? I don't really want to work in a cubicle and like just be working on stuff that I'm not passionate about. And I always had this artistic side that I wanted to be able to, you know, uh, make use of in some way. So I guess, you know, I kind of, I got my degree. I didn't know what I was going to do. I was kind of afraid of going into the actual workforce. And so I started working on this little project um, that at first I was thinking it was just going to be a way to practice, get better at programming. Maybe I would release it on some little like, you know, Xbox Live Indie Games, which was the, the thing at the time for Xbox 360. Right. And that would be it. And it would take a couple months. Well, that little project eventually turned into Stardew Valley after four <laughs> years. <laughs> because at first, you know, I was like, you know, I, I just thought it was going to be this dumb little thing. I was bad at everything. Like I wasn't, I had never done pixel art before, so it just looked like crap. I didn't, I didn't know how to develop games, really. and But I started getting better. And then each time I got better at something, I wanted to completely redo the entire game and make it better. So I kept doing that over and over again. And I, I started to see more and more potential with the game. You know, this fills a niche that needs to be filled on PC. There is no farming RPG on PC. And it's like, I've, I'm a huge Harvest Moon fan, and I always looked for that sort of thing on PC, and I never was able to find it. So I ended up deciding that I would just do it. And yeah, it evolved into this huge project. So there's, man, okay, so there's a lot to unpack here um, because the story, I mean, the basic story and what a lot of people that listen to our podcast are going to want to hear is like, this is a thing that I, you know, there was a need that I saw that could be filled and I filled it. And I think that that's kind of the simplest form of it. Um, let me start with this. Let's take game let's well let's start with pixel art how long did it take for you to go from here is the first piece of pixel art i'm gonna ever try to create to like feeling like okay like i can do this and i can do a bunch of assets and a bunch of sprite sheets and i can get this done it probably took me four years of just countless hours of working on it so i mean i probably put in i don't know a thousand hours of practice on pixel art before I feel felt like I was actually like pretty good at it. Yeah. And I still feel like I'm not that good and there's so much room for improvement and I'll still get a lot better. Um, do you cringe? Do you cringe at any of your work that's in the game right now? I don't really cringe at any of it that's in the game now, but I certainly cringe at stuff that was in previous <laughs> uh, versions of the game. Right. It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing, but you have to, I mean, my background and everyone is probably sick of me telling these stories because they listen to the show every week, but my background is design. And so I get where you come from, right? Like there's, there's just any good creative work has to be part of a process of like just sucking at it for a while and just trying it anyway, you know? Of course. And I think that if you don't think that your work is crap, then you're not improving and you're going to become stagnant. So it's like, it's a good sign. If you always think your stuff is garbage, 
I think it's a pretty good sign. It means you're self-critical, which is essential. Yeah. But I think it's also more than self-criticism. I think it's a little bit, it's a mixture of self-critical and having like a solid vision. And like, like you said, that compulsion, because um, critiquing your work is like the first step, but then like having the resolve to know like how to work through what oftentimes at the time feels like I don't have an answer. Like I know that it's not good. I don't know that I know how to make it good. And that's like the no man's land that I think a lot of people get tripped up on is that that's because obviously when you do have the answer, then you just work towards it. But when you're kind of in that wasteland of like, I just have to keep working until I find out where this is going to go. But I don't right now. Um, that often happens in creative work. And I think a lot of people fall off the fall off the path there because it's a it's a hard place to be. It's a frustrating place to be. And I think part of it has to be. You know, you have a vision for what you're ultimately making. You know what it's going to be and you you love the idea of it. And then part of it is just like that personality type where you have this compulsive need to build something until you see it through. Right. Totally. And that's, I think, uh, what it takes to be a solo game developer. I mean, if you have a team, then you can get away with, you know, just kind of being an artist and not really having a strong like vision of what you want to do because people are telling you what to do. And I mean, that's totally fine, but it's like, it, it kind of, it's, I think it's, it takes a rare sort of, um, person to actually be a successful solo game. Developer. And I don't, I'm not trying to brag or anything. I'm just trying to be honest and realistic. I don't think it's a brag. In fact, I would say that like, it's more like, like let's like counterbalance this for a second, because I, I, I'm going to draw some parallels to you and I based on different different like work, different fields. I came out of school and I started uh, working at a large tech company as a designer on their brand team. I lasted four months before I got fired. Um, I came out of school as a good designer, as getting you know good accolades in my design program. And, and when I went and interviewed at a lot of places, I had a lot of really positive feedback on my work. And for a while, I really struggled with this notion of like, why did I not, why, would, why couldn't I work at a company like my first job why did they fire me? Why am I not good enough to hold down like a normal job? Over over time, I eventually, like a couple months later, started my own studio that's been very successful. And uh, over a period of time, I realized that there's a certain personality profile. My personal personality profile failed to thrive in an environment that was a lot bigger, a lot more structured, and where I was a smaller piece of the machine because I lost vision of what I like to do in a creative context. When I started my own studio, I got to work more on like the earlier side of projects. I got to like, you know, go through the ideation process. I got to work through kind of um, building out what a design was going to be. And then the execution was the next step. And by finding purpose in that, I was able to be successful. So I think in some ways, like people need to be aware of their personality types. And, you know, some people might want to be a solo dev because it makes more financial sense to them or they're afraid of, you know, other people like changing their ideas or whatever. But I think it has to be a little bit more about like, what is your personality profile? What sort of environments do you thrive in? And that might mean that you want to work on your own thing. Oh, absolutely. I absolutely agree with you. And, you know, a lot of people often will ask me, what give me some advice how do i become a solo game developer and you know i i always give them advice but really what i'm thinking is you know the fact that you're even asking me this is not a good sign right because i i think that it takes the type of personality that you're just like so personally driven that you're just going to like figure it out right you, you you're like determined you have to be absolutely determined 
and I mean, it just goes along with what you're saying. You need a certain type of personality, and I agree. It's more important than almost any other consideration. I also think, and I'd, I'd like to hear what you have to say about this, but I also think that we attach a lot of, like, we glorify the role of, like, a solo creative that, like, oh, they did the whole thing themselves, and that's really amazing. Because it is. It's amazing. What What are the, I mean in my experience, there are also drawbacks, right? Like there are certain things that you aren't able to do as well as you want to do, or there are certain things that you have to work through in a manner that might not be as efficient as you would hope. Um, I think there are definitely drawbacks to both things, you know? So what's that snapshot of like, you know, being a solo dev and like all of the good things that come with it, but like, what are the things that even now still, even though you know, you're going to be a solo dev and this is kind of the career path you've chosen, the things that you have to manage because of that decision to be a solo dev. Well, there's there's a lot of things. I mean, for one, it's lonely. I mean, I am kind of a solitary person, which, right. you know, it's kind of why I am a solo developer. But at the same time, you know, all humans pretty much want community and want to feel like they're part of some bigger community. And that's something that I kind of am lacking. I feel like an outsider all the time. And there's some benefits to that, but it's not like it doesn't necessarily feel that great on like a human level. Right. Another another thing is that, you know, I just have to do everything myself pretty much. I mean, it's not exactly true because I have Chucklefish, my publisher, and they help me with a lot of like business stuff and, you know, stuff that I don't necessarily like to do. Um, but there's a lot of bur burden on me personally. You know, any bug or problem with the game, it's all on me because right. I did everything. So it's like I feel personally responsible for every single you know, players experience with my game. Right. And if you're part of a team, you know, there's a distribution of responsibility. Yeah. And, you know, I think that each person even will feel almost, you know, like they can feel like they're not even responsible because they can just imagine that it's, you know, spread across everyone else. And so it's mutually like no one actually has to feel that stress and guilt and anxiety about that. Yeah. Have you reached out to any of the other kind of, notable solo devs of the last few years just in like camaraderie like like i know toby fox you know i reached out to him about undertale to do a, a podcast and yeah. he, he emailed me back and he said look i just i can't i don't want to i'm sorry like i'm tired and like and it and, and it's funny enough it wasn't even the development that really wore him out i think it was the success that wore him out because it suddenly you know, he had so much to answer for and so many people and so many like expectations. And I, you know, of course I was like, dude, that's fine. Like, no worries. I understand. <laughs> like you, you're managing a lot. And I, I hadn't yet reached, I know that Tom, ha I feel like Tom Hap was mainly responsible. I, 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 didn't he solo do um, his game? I think. Uh, yeah, I think he did. Anyway, I don't know. There, there's a few of you in the last the last year or so that that did this and did it quite successfully. It's it's very rare though. It's rare to do successfully um, and live to tell the tale and be able to talk about it um, yeah. candidly. I think I haven't actually reached out to anyone. Um, I think maybe part of that, and I wouldn't be surprised if you know a lot of solo developers are just kind of introverts or kind of shy actually and maybe that's part of why they're solo developers in the first place right you know I, I i totally can commiserate with toby fox on like the 
post-release is the most draining and tiring part of the whole thing because we're probably the kind of people who are like we get like energized by working on the game and actually doing the creative artistic process of making the game yeah and we're not really like we didn't go into it because we want to be huge public figures and we want to have to talk to you know thousands of people and hear everyone's you know, feedback about it. It's not like I, I dislike that really, but it is kind of exhausting. It's not something that I'm really, you know, it's not my strong suit. Yeah. And I feel like I wouldn't be surprised if that's common among solo developers. Well, and I think that's ultimately part of the cost of being a solo developer because then you realize, and I've, I've run into a lot of independent developers that kind of have this side of them that they're like, I want to make this thing. This is what I know how to do. This is what I like to do. But then there comes a point where games are all, you know, making a game successful also means like marketing and sales and bug fixing and then kind of the long tail afterwards. And, and I mean, even me, like I, I actually, I'm kind of the other side personality ways. I like to talk to people. I get energy off of that. I, I kind of, lose energy when I'm too much by myself. But, um, you know, when you're a solo dev, you're, you're responsible for all of it. You, you have to kind of show up for that marketing side of things. You have to show up for that, you know, social side of things. And, and, and so you're suddenly thrust into a job that you didn't necessarily apply for. Like you, you just made a thing that you loved and gave exactly. it, you know, you, you're like, here's this thing I made everybody like enjoy it. And then suddenly it's like, someone's like knocking on your door, like, Hey, you got to show up today. And you're like, wait, what? <laughs> Right, exactly. I know. It's like, uh, yeah, it feels almost random. It's like, I didn't necessarily expect for this to be a huge success. It could have easily not been a success. That's how I feel. And then I wouldn't be in this position. So it's like, people think that because it's a success, you know, that maybe uh, they have different expectations. I, or at least I feel like the scene or the public has a different expectation of me than for someone that, you know, didn't find the success. But I also feel like that success was almost random. So, like, it just feels kind of weird. Like you say, it's, not, it's a job that I didn't necessarily sign up for. But I guess, you know, if you're being a game developer, you need to take into account the possibility that your game is going to be a big success and you are going to have to do these things. Yeah, I and mean... That's I kind of how I view it, like... yeah. That's how it is now, for sure. And and I think that anybody that goes into game development would be better served by having their eyes wide open about the realities of independent game development because there's there's just, you know, I, I, spending years and, you know, I work in New York City and, you know, I'm close to the creative industries here and I've worked in all kinds of different companies and worked with different types of clients. And I've never seen anything like the games industry because now you suddenly are finding these people that are taking on the role of artists, animators, game designers, developers, marketers. I mean, the list goes on. And that I, I don't know anybody that has that kind of demand on their their time and their energy and their skill set. And it's like the, it's the antithesis of like specialization. It's just like be everybody, you two, three people. That's a hard thing but to I do. Mean, to be honest, it is hard, but it's also kind of cool that you can synthesize like all these different uh, – skills together into one actually like cohesive and successful package yeah it's like it's not a boring job it's it's like one of <laughs> it's probably the most diverse and stimulating job you could possibly have yeah. to be a solo game developer that's what i'm that's what attracted me to it in the first place i think because you can do everything 
and you'll feel like fulfilled on every single like level of you know artistic pursuit not only artistic but everything business you know social stuff communications yeah i don't know it's a fun job i'm not complaining yeah <laughs> like the bo- the bottom line is i'd rather be in this position you know where i have to do some stuff that isn't necessarily my favorite stuff to do i'd rather be in this position than you know my game wasn't a success so i'm not complaining i'm yeah. happy to be here and I think it'll. I think you're gonna yeah. see the game on some 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 uh, big lists at the end of the year. Well, that'd be awesome. I think you will. <laughs> I think I I think it's inevitable. I mean, it's a darling, and it's funny because you know spending so much time around people in games that make them and that play them and things like that with Playwell. Um, you know, you are you are known, you are recognized um, universally by by some of the most uh, storied decorated game designers out there and i think that that's something to speak to right uh yeah <laughs> it's a good yeah thing. i think so it's yeah it thing. is so and, um sorry go ahead uh i mean i was just gonna say i mean it's like i feel honored to be in this position and it's just really cool well four years of work just goes to show that you, <laughs> you've earned it because that's a long development um let's pivot and talk about the game i you know i could go on and on about this story because I think there's so much to learn here. And the funny thing is, you know, Playwell now we've pivoted into a new thing. Uh, we used to mainly teach classes to people about how to make their own games. And largely the, the the story that we were always trying to tell people is that solo dev is not the way to go. And I think I'd still tell that story. I don't think I would encourage most people to be solo devs because great creative work most often takes collaboration. Um, but you do have people that are talented enough and dedicated enough to do something on their own. There always will be. Those are the outliers. Those are the, the icons of what we do. And you're lucky to be among them. Um, but most people that I do meet, they, they, you know, they come in. I mean, recently we even, we interviewed um, the brothers who made uh, mini Metro and it's a fascinating story because they're both programmers and their game is essentially the result of them dealing with very, particular constraints that they're not artists they're not animators so they're like oh well we can do something with like a metro map because that's not hard (laughs) that's not hard to design for visually they since went in and hired some designers to kind of make it really beautiful and and they've won awards for it but but you know everybody kind of manages their particular skill set you know according to what they're willing to do and and both ways can work Um, but i think for the most part collaboration is probably the right answer you just run into outliers every once in a while Right, and I would uh, I would agree with you. I wouldn't really recommend people become solo devs either, because I think that the people that will become solo devs aren't going to listen to that advice anyway. <laughs> so it, it's just uh, prudent to probably advise people not to do yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, cool, yeah. Man. So the game, uh, and and I will preface this by saying that um, the the busy life that I lead, I've played probably about thirteen, fourteen hours of it. Um, and I think, and it's also a dangerous game because when I do play it, like it's sucks me (laughs) and like, I can't, like, I think about it a lot and and it's got, it's definitely got that like mechanic of like just one more day, you know, just like, I could just do one more day. So it's just another 20 minutes, just 25 minutes. And then suddenly like, you know, four hours into the night, very much akin to like what happens when I play something like civilization. 
Um, but my understanding is that you are the creative force behind it when it comes to the design. And you already mentioned um, the that uh, Harvest Moon was a big inspiration. Was there anything else that kind of went into that hopper of like, what what am I drawing ideas from? Or did you really just want to make something that mimicked that experience as much as possible? Well, I mean, Harvest Moon was certainly the big, big inspiration. Um, but I, I'm sure that every game that I've played has influenced the way that I designed this game. I mean, it was mostly uh, inspired by just classic Super Nintendo era games and maybe some, you know, PlayStation JRPGs, those sort of things. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, it was mainly Harvest Moon. I guess there was maybe some Secret of Mana kind of uh, influence in, like, the combat. Yeah. I love Sacred of Mana so much. That game is like, that game is like right, right in the middle of like everything that I loved about that era of, of RPGs. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah. And that's, that's actually, uh, that makes perfect sense. Uh, you know, one of the first things that I noticed that really stood out to me is one of the best executed things in the game is the music because, it's so effortlessly evocative of a time in a way that I think that sometimes like our uh, referential version of like 16 bit era music is still far too modern to really be that faithful to what it originally was. It feels like mm-hmm. you kind of nailed it with something that feels fundamentally like a, a bygone era. And it's part of, I think what's such what's so delighting about the game. Yeah. I think a uh, part of that is just that, I mean, you could say that I'm a childish person. And what I mean by that is just that I still, I've never let go of that feeling of being a kid, Mm -hmm. being like a little kid where everything is kind of just magical and uh, you're just really like drawn to things that are kind of just playful and fun. And that's what I feel like was special about that Super Nintendo kind of era of um, soundtracks. Like everything kind of had a certain playfulness to it, at least the games that I really liked, you know, the... Nintendo games, Mario, Super Mario RPG, the soundtracks had this really this kind of playfulness to it and it kind of evoked that childhood sense of wonder and that the world was a magical place and kind of there's a big adventure to be had out there. And that was kind of the approach and the feeling that I tried to evoke in the music. I don't know. It's good. I mean, it's it's that 16-bit <laughs> banjo, man. It's the little like MIDI banjo yeah. sound. <laughs> that thing is like <laughs> It gets you bopping. And like, I I will, I often play games like this, like these kind of, like you said, these low and slow games, these kind of like Zen-like games. I play them with something in the background, like I'll listen to the news or I'll listen to a podcast, but I I can't turn the music off from Stardew Valley because it's just, because it really wraps the experience and the charm up perfectly together. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, music is probably the like main thing that I've done, uh, over my life like before I even was ever had the idea of becoming a game developer I wanted to be a musician or like you know be in a band I was in bands you know in high school and community college and stuff so it's always been the biggest thing for me did you um did you do music even before you started doing visual stuff for this or vice versa um I think I started doing the visual so see my my development style is very sloppy it's like 
just do a little bit of this, a little bit of that, whatever I feel like at the time. Mm -hmm. So I think that I kind of started with visual stuff like right away just because I wanted to have that um, kind of interactive feedback. And then I started to write songs that kind of went with that. Yeah. But yeah. Okay. I like the idea of actually starting with a soundtrack and then building a game around that. That's an idea I've had lately. I mean, it's just so so evocative. I, I you you could listen to the songs in Stardew Valley, and you could generate strong visual themes from it. Yeah, you really could. It's it's because it's because <laughs> it's very evocative and it's very, it's very like um, it has a persona about it, right? It's not like just textural sound, you know, scape that like fills up a space, but it it's like. Like every switch in the music feels like it's very purposeful. And I also noticed that you're very good about weaving in some like, like I was playing it earlier um, or I was playing a little while ago um, early in my, in my uh, save, I had started a new save and I went down to the kind of that ocean area to, by the fishing shack to try fishing down there. And I noticed a lot of the ambient sounds there. And I thought like, Oh, like there's a lot of like consideration into every like level of this, right? Which I don't think you get out right. of a lot of small development teams because they don't either don't have the experience or, or I don't know. Yeah, you just you you were really smart with the sound. I think. Yeah, I think that I just uh, to me the ambience of a game, the atmosphere, that's like half of it. That's what's extremely important, and people don't even really notice that. I think. I mean, you might notice it, but if you. I think most people just play the game and they're just, they think this game is really immersive or something, but they don't really, you know, you're not even aware of it. So it's kind of something that you might, might not be obvious as a developer to really spend time on. But like, if it's not there, then people just won't feel like your game is very alive. And for me, that's, was just something that was really important was to make the, the whole world feel really alive and. Yeah. Uh-huh. No, it's the details. It's 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 the yeah. you know the devil's in the details or God is in the details, whichever phrase you decide to to follow. But <laughs> but I think totally. um, I think that yeah, there's there's a sense of like what people don't notice is largely what lends to the feel of it. And I think that you know I, I've worked with a lot of small game developers that they concern themselves so heavily with mechanics, and mm-hmm. uh, sometimes I think to bury a mechanic that's not as engaging or a mechanic that's not working, they add, right? They, they'll like multiply more mechanics or they'll add more features because the thought is like more features will mean a more fun game, more stuff to do. But, you know, oftentimes in Stardew Valley when I'm playing, um, I'm doing the same thing over and over and over. Like that core gameplay loop of, you know, getting up in the morning, uh, picking any like plants that have grown, watering them, and then just making this like very simple decision. Am I going to go into the cave and like mine? Am I going to go into the town and talk to people? Am I going to expand like my farm? Am I going to clear stuff off? It's like a few very clear decisions, but they're rewarding over and over so that you haven't over, you haven't over designed like the mechanics or the, the things that can be done in the game. Uh, you just made doing that very rewarding itself. And that's, I think where a lot of, new game developers fall apart is where they don't realize that like you have to get that core loop really satisfying and really tight. Absolutely. I mean, I think you totally get it, uh, that it's, I just spent a lot of time, you know, I realized that a lot of these game mechanics sound boring on paper. I mean, what you, you're watering plants, you're digging (laughs) in the dirt with a hoe, like this is 
a boring activity, right? So how do you make that fun? It's like you have to really just focus on all the little feedback, the sound effects, the visual of it. And uh, just like also taking into consideration that as the when you're playing the game, you're think you have to you're, you want to be thinking about the big picture of but like, why am I doing this? And that needs to be something that's exciting so that you're you feel good about doing these kind of menial tasks because they're propelling you towards this, you know, bigger goal that you're excited about. And I think that's something as a developer that you need to be conscious of is like the amount of um, goals and rewards and also the pacing of that needs to be kind of structured in such a way to keep players engaged with the game. And then, of course, yeah, you need constant uh, visual and audio feedback to make it feel fun. That's the main thing is it needs to feel fun. It's like it can sound so boring, but if it feels good to do it, that's like, you know, that's everything. That's all you need. Yeah. That's all you need. When, when we interviewed um, uh, Nick from Manami Park, they made Slime Rancher. He talked about how when they prototyped it, they literally just prototyped this slime gun. And it was all about sucking things up and spitting them back out. And they wireframed it and it was super crude and they did it, I think, in like Unity. And they put that in people's hands. We're like, is it fun to shoot this gun back and forth? And once they could see that people were like so like delighted to run around and shoot this thing where you could suck stuff up and shoot it back out, that's it, right? Like you got it because that's what you're mm-hmm. doing and you can wrap it with all kinds of stuff. And so there's a story and, and then you're getting these little slimes and they can breed and you can layer the systems on top of it to create a rich experience. But that thing that you do over and over is what you're coming back for is just to run around and suck up these slimes and spin it back out. And uh, yeah, that's, that's intelligent game design. Um, but again, like not everybody gets it or, or I think sometimes even I think people get it, but that's not like a sexy part of like designing a game. That's not like the, that's not the, like the beautiful, exciting thing that like you feel like this is why I got into this. That's like, it's kind of grueling to get it right sometimes to like really like focus on it to get it there, but it pays off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And it's uh, it's another the kind of thing that, you know, I didn't even I wasn't really super conscious of it, even though I am now. But I feel like, you know, when I started, I, I didn't know anything about game development. I never read any articles about it or anything like during the whole process of Stardew Valley. Yeah. It was just this kind of gut feeling that I had by playing video games my whole life and I think just being mindful of them. I mean, that's something I would just say to any like a kid who wants to be a game developer is just become start to become very mindful of the games you play. Yeah. And think about why is this fun or you know, you'll just kind of if you're the kind of person who absorbs those sort of things, then you're well on your way to just having that gut feeling for you know, what to do to make things fun. Yeah. Or what I do, and like exactly like, so what I do, oftentimes I was doing this, I was playing Ratchet and Clank the other day on PS4. I take notes and it sounds so boring and dumb, but it's amazing. Like I'll like, I'll play through the game and I'll like stop and I'll just notice like these, you just, you take more notice of the tiny things that are happening to make it really work. And then you write that down and suddenly it solidifies. So yeah, I think it's, it's, it's about being aware because there are a lot of small things working together to make it completely work. Um, I'm always fascinated by the game Dots because I actually, I, I really hope the guys from Dots don't listen to this podcast because this might be the third time that I've kind of, I'm not dissing them. I don't know. Everyone's got their own thing. But I find Dots to be 
a relatively poorly designed game because I think that I think that there's a fine balance in games that you have to strike between randomness and like strategy, right? So like you have to give the player enough of an objective for them to be able to like map out a strategy and be able to decide, well, here's how I'm going to go about these things. But then you have to throw in some randomness so that they have to adapt to that as they move through whatever environment that they're in. You know, Stardew Valley has that in that like every day, you know, there might be something different that you have to, you know, come up across, whether it's like a request from a, a villager or whether it's, you know, a certain, you know, festival or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like Dots actually falls a little bit too far on the randomness side where you can, you know, and you've got that, you've got that gameplay system where there's energy and like you can only play five times before you have to wait for three or four hours and to play again. And sometimes you just get like a lot of times you just get a really bad drop of dots. Like they just, it just sucks. Like you can't do anything about it. And it's like, well, there goes like my chance to play. And I think that that's kind of where they fall apart. But when you play dots and you make a score, have you played dots? Am I just talking about this? You know? I, I haven't played it. No. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm just assuming here. Cause it's like in New York, like you go on the subway and everybody's playing dots um in dots it's like just drops these colorful dots on different like boards and you know you clear dots and they keep dropping and fill in the space it's very simple if you make a square in the game dots of a certain color all of the pieces of that color disappear and you notice when you make this square that there's like 10 different like sensory things happening all at once that are so subtle but it just like it's just like an endorphin shot it's just like you know, you mm -hmm. get this little bounce and a tiny bit of screen shake and you get like a little meter that fills up and then like a color flashes and the dots themselves flash. <laughs> and there's so many yeah. like sensory things that it makes that moment of making that square feel so triumphant that you, you feel so compelled to like go and do it again. And I think that it's that, right? It's those tiny details that are very yes, carefully uh, minded. Definitely. Yeah. Anyway. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's it's kind of like um, advanced game development, I feel like to uh, be aware of those things. Yeah. And I, I, it took me like, I think a couple of years of working on Stardew Valley before like I really started to become even aware of those things in a very like conscious way. Yeah. And then, you know, tried even further to enhance that sort of thing. Did you have a really like rigorous testing process to make sure that everything was working and people were perceiving it right? Or did you kind of keep it close to the chest? Close to the chest. I mean, like I said before, the whole development process was extremely sloppy, very indie. I mean, as indie as you can get. And I just mean that in like amateur. It was amateur. Like, no, I had no testing process, no <laughs> rigorous testing process. Very like poorly coded in many ways, uh, <laughs> to be honest. But see, the thing that was, I wasn't focusing too much on the technical details of the development. Right. I was thinking more about the big picture, like what am I trying to achieve here and how do I get there? That's it. What, you know, if getting there meant doing things in a kind of a unideal or sloppy way, so be it. I mean, it worked out, so I don't regret that really. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of developers get too focused on like the the gear or like the, you know, technical details, like coding it in the most uh, precise and... Um, perfect way rather than thinking about the end goal and what are they trying to achieve you know you see this in all kinds of areas of life you know uh, when I used to be in bands or things like that there you know a lot of guys are 
so focused on like the what guitar they have and what amp they have and what kind of effects pedals they have and like you know they always want to talk about you know exactly what gear do you use and stuff like that i don't know i i guess just my philosophy has always been kind of different um it it could be that i mean like i developed the game on just the lowest end pc you could possibly have and it yeah i mean i don't know that's awesome though look like i think you i think it's safe to say i'm gonna throw this out there you know it takes a visionary to make something really successful and some people have that ability and and it's a word that i think we we uh again we we put so much like uh romanticizing in it but um it takes a visionary and that means somebody who can who knows what they're building and through kind of like the up and down or like the long like stints of like not working like stuff's not working to be able to like stay on the mark and not get swayed by kind of what 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 they need to you know do to to make people happy but just like no like there's a thing that i'm building and this is what it's going to be and i think you probably quite obviously to me at this point possess as a personality quality is that you're you're a visionary type of person i'm not like here i am like psychoanalyzing you look like (laughs) you know what you were trying to build and that's hard for people to do especially um when they're working alone because you got to be able to stay you know that keep that eye on the prize and and i think that that sounds like to me what it largely was yeah no i i think you're right and you know i i uh i feel like you know i don't I don't want to sound like, you know, an elitist or something, you know, trying to say that I'm the best and you have to be some kind of special person to do this. Yeah, I think you do. But I also want to encourage everyone to follow their dreams. And I think that like a lot of people probably have the potential to do great things, um, whether they know it or not. Yeah. 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 No, it's it's like I said before, it's not that there's one right way to do it. It's that you have to be aware of your personality type, what you can and can't do and what, what environments that you thrive in and that make you feel creative and make you feel invigorated and willing to kind of put in what it takes. And for many people, for a ton of people that's working in a team at a small company, it might be working in a team in a large company. You know, some people are the type that they want to noodle on one tiny problem for a long, long time. Other people are the type that they want to create a, a big grand thing and they might not get the chance to sit and noodle on the tiny thing forever, but 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 they're able to create a, a bigger thing. And it's just, I think it's about being aware of what type of personality you are and, and kind of chasing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you said it perfectly. Yeah. I agree with you. So I think a lot of people that listen to the show are going to be bummed out if I don't ask you this next question. So, because I got to let you go okay. quickly because we've been doing this for about 15 minutes. Um How'd you make it work, man? Four years, right? So like the big problem of a lot of independent development is uh, sustaining oneself in, in, a, in a way that is healthy and that doesn't cost people so much of their sanity. How did you do that? Mm-hmm. It was a mixture of many things. I mean, for one, it's my personality type to be very driven, very ambitious, and uh, just never give up, you know, sort of personality type. That helps. Another thing was that there was a lot of social pressure whether it was real or imagined I'm not sure but I felt that you know I had been telling people for years that I was making this game and 
you know, I was going to be an indie game developer and that, you know, people are asking me, why aren't you, why don't you have a job? Like, why, why aren't you using <laughs> your computer science degree to get a good paying job? And I had to like basically, you know, justify that I was, well, I wanted to be this, you know, struggling artist kind of indie game developer. So I felt like if I didn't follow through with that, then I would be seen as kind of a joke of a person. I'd be the laughing stock of my social circle. <laughs> and that was a strong pressure to, you know, I did not want to be that. I wanted to be someone that, you know, everyone respected. Uh, so that certainly was a strong driving principle. Interesting. And another thing was that I just um, convinced myself that I was going to be successful. I mean, I had doubts. Yes, I was... I had a lot of doubt personally that, you know, maybe this was going to pan out. Maybe I'm delusional. This is going to be an absolute flop and I had wasted four years. But I just ignored those thoughts. I pushed them as deep inside as I possibly could. And I turned myself into a, just a character of absolute like faith in myself, faith in my abilities and complete faith that the game was going to be a success. And wow. I used that as a psychological tool to allow myself to continue and to not let my doubt and anxiety get in the way. That's pretty impressive, man. What about, um, what about, um, like financially, logistically, I mean, were you kind of working small side jobs to keep, keep, the, keep afloat or how'd you, how'd well, you I, was I mean, no, okay, well, I was, you don't have to okay. answer anything that you're uncomfortable answering sure. by the way. No, I, I'm fine with telling, uh, the truth. Um, so, I mean, I have a girlfriend who was supporting us for the most part. That was very, I was very fortunate. I am very fortunate to have that. Um, yeah, I did work a side job. I, I was a, a theater usher at the local theater, cool. which was like just a part-time minimum wage sort of thing. And, you know, I didn't even, part, part of doing that was just to get out of the house because, I mean, <laughs> I've, I was just sitting in front of the computer basically by myself for four years. Yeah. Um, and I think that I kind of needed to have some kind of interaction with other people other than my girlfriend and my parents. Yeah. Smart, man. But, well, you did it, dude. That's, uh, I mean, yeah. that's impressive. And, and just to kind of close it out, because I, I don't want to take too much of your time, but, um, you know, you've created a beautiful thing and obviously probably the start of a, a long, successful career. I, I would love to see what it is that um, people can gain from, you know, your story and your experience uh, and kind of this growing narrative of how we continue to make independent game development sustainable, livable, positive, more efficient, you know, because the infrastructure, like there's a lot of people that are kind of going about it the same way as you are, which is like, I want to make this thing. I'm just going to learn how to do it. And like, we'll figure it out, see what happens. Right. Which is, which again, works for very few people as successfully as it has for you. A lot of people are out there swinging and missing because there's not a lot of infrastructure in our industry yet. It's, it's young and we're still trying to shape the vocabulary of like, you know, how are games designed and, what, why do certain things work? And, and I see people all the time trying to kind of claim a little bit of the space and, and explain it in a way that, that we can, that makes sense and pass that on. But, but it's, I mean, it's kind of the wild west right now. Like it's just people are figuring it out and, and we're just kind of defining what these are and it's changing all the time. Um, so I'm excited to see kind of what you continue to do. 
and um, how you help shape that conversation because I think it's very viable to say that your experience with this game um, is is very strong is a very strong part of the narrative of like this era of like games and game creation and ultimately what they will become. I think that that's something that should be part of the conversation forever. But yeah, fantastic work, man. That's I I love what you've done. So bravo. Well, thank you. Sweet. Thank you, and thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah, dude, really appreciate it. We have a good a good pack of people that love listening to these. So um, hopefully uh, you'll get. I'll, I'll let you know when it goes live, and uh, hopefully we get a chat sometime soon. If you come to New York, we'll, drinks on us. We, we'd love to meet up sometime. All right, sounds good. Cool, man. Take it easy. All right, you too. Bye. Bye. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode. Once again, a huge thank you to Eric for taking the time. I ended up kind of stealing way too much of his time that went on for, I think, 50 minutes. But there was just so many interesting things to talk about. And he's such a brilliant guy. Uh, and I had so many questions. Wasn't able to get to too much about the game itself. We ended up li- listening to him talk a little bit more about how he managed to build this game by himself. It's just such a compelling part of his story that I couldn't get away from it. Uh, If you like what you hear and you want to keep listening to the podcast, please subscribe, share it with your friends, share it with your family, share it with your pets. I think that uh, the more people that we get listening to it, the easier it is for us to keep doing these. Um, And you can check us out. We're on social media, uh, on uh, Twitter at PlayWellCo. I think also Instagram, PlayWellCo. I think you can find us on Facebook. We don't update it as much, but we get stuff up there as well. Um, and if you're in New York, we put on a ton of events. In fact, last week's episode was our second ever games debate club. If you didn't have a chance to hear it, go back and check it out. Anyway, thanks for coming guys. And, uh, we'll check you back. I think next week with another episode. Bye.